Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about different theories of time. Now, a quick word. I don't think I'm smart enough to actually understand this fully. And hey, that's okay. Just like if I go to the gym and I find a really heavy weight, I might not be able to pick it up, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to try. Maybe I'll back it down a little bit, get in a few reps. It could be beyond my genetic potential, but there's only one way to find out. So philosophy of time gets really thick, really complicated, and it branches into a variety of other related philosophical questions. One about uh, continuity of self, about consciousness, about general metaphysics. You know, what are things? What are we talking about, about things in time? It goes all over the place. It is dense. It is thick. It is difficult. However, I will do my best to untangle this, and I think you'll enjoy it. So if you don't think you can really understand all the philosophy of time stuff, welcome to the club. Uh, we'll all be misunderstanding it together. And the reason I'm doing this episode now is because we have two people who I do think are pretty darn smart. I don't know if they understand it, but I think they're going to be able to give us a piece of the puzzle. Next week, we have a, uh, a professor from UVA who's coming on the podcast, and let's see, I think it's a couple weeks after that, we have Ryan Mullins coming on the podcast. And both of those will be about time. I figured we should have a primer episode before we get to those, because those could really get into the weeds and use a lot of jargon and different terms that uh, you may or may not be familiar with. So here is the prep episode for that. So, um... If I take random pauses to sip my coffee, it's because I need all of the brain power that I can muster to explain this in a halfway understandable way. So the first distinction we're going to make is between A theory and B theory. Now, A theory says that there is a privileged place in time that we call the present or now, and that there is a continual movement from past to present, to future. Was, is, and will be, under this, under this view, are not reducible to, say, June 22nd, June 23rd, and June 24th. And there's a couple reasons for why we know these aren't reducible. One reason is that there are things which can prompt action. There are some truths which can prompt action, and some that, that can't. For instance, I have to use the bathroom on June 23rd at 3 p.m. We'll contrast that with this next statement. I need to use the bathroom now. All right, well, one could certainly prompt some action, even if, fundamentally speaking, they're referencing the same absolute point in time, 3 p.m. on June 23rd. So it seems the truth of one of those statements has the unique power to prompt that action in a way that the other does not. This means that one is different, and therefore, one is not reducible into the other. Now, uh, let's take another example. It will rain tomorrow. Well, this could be true. Yet the same statement could be false tomorrow, showing that the temporal motion, in other words, as we move through time, it seems to affect the truth value of the exact same statement, it will rain tomorrow. So this makes sense if we affirm what we talked about earlier, that there is indeed a continual motion from past to present to future. So 
In this argument, we would say that there's a change in the truth value of a given statement. Um, most people who take an A theory claim that this is more intuitive, that just the way that we're wired, and we are presumably wired as truth, truth seekers, um, presumably we have rational intellects which can actually uh, grasp on to the truth of reality, and if we aren't, well, it's useless to have the discussion anyway. So assuming these things, if we have a strong intuition, uh, although it could be fallible, it wouldn't be a bad thing to presume that it's true until proven otherwise. And I think there is something to this argument that it does really feel like the past is gone, the future is not yet, and the present is all that exists. Um, now, the past seems to be able to ground truths in ways that the present and the future cannot. That's, that's another argument we could put forth. For example, in physics, we have a wave uh, wave function collapse. Um, and that means that there's a real difference between that thing in the past, in the present, and the future. And that the pass-off point from past to future is the present, right? So that could be an example of, a, uh, of how we couldn't just make a, um, and we'll get into this a little bit later, a non-tensed fact about a wave function. Because at the present or in, or in the past, it is fundamentally different than what it could be in the future, right? So that's um, that kind of presumes that you understand wave function collapse, which you probably do because you guys are pretty smart. If you don't, I would go in and check into exactly what that entails because that's going to take us a little bit farther afield. So let's talk about B theory. Um, now, I'm going to be drawing from a classic argument from McTurney, McGaggart, McTaggart, um, and I believe McTaggart's actually the guy who coined A and B theory. Um, to my knowledge, he actually rejected both and then took some wacky view about time not existing or something. But in any case, he's the guy who came up with these categories. And here's his argument um, in favor of, or yes, in favor of, not really in favor of B theory, against A theory, because I believe he rejected both. He says, um, at any given time, past, present, and future are incompatible determinations, right? So he's saying that you can't say that past, present, and future are all the same. Yet, also at any given time, an event has all three determinations. If M, don't you hate how philosophers use, you know, letters instead of actual words or things? Anyways, if M is past, it has been present and future. If it is future, it will be present and past. If it is present, it has it has been future and will be past. Thus, all the three incompatible determinations are, are predicatable of the same event, which is obviously inconsistent with their being, with their being incompatible. That was my promised sip of coffee right there. All right, here's my summary of that, if you didn't quite catch it the first time around. My summary is that um, World War II is always past in relation to, say, the Cold War. But World War II is always future with regard to World War I. And World War II is present with regard to World War II. This means that that it holds all three tenses, past, present, and future. Thus, the three tenses 
cannot, in fact, be different. But you may say they are different because of the relation of the ordering of the events. Well, sure, but that collapses into B theory, where things are not defined as past, present, and future, but rather only in an earlier than and later than relation. Now, an objector might say that uh, he has assumed his conclusion of tensed time and simply translated that tensed story into a tenseless one, i.e. his argument doesn't start with a now. But, but wait, if B-theory is right, then he's done it right because there is no now in which to start. So it seems that if he assumes a A-theory, he would probably arrive there. But likewise, if he assumes a B-theory, he would probably arrive there also. In essence, we need something else to decide this issue. And those earlier arguments could be candidates. So let's take the bathroom example. There is nothing about the date or the, or the supposed now that prompts the event. The events instead come from cause and effect. So this could be a B-theorist claim that we're not saying that it's just the nowness of that statement that prompts the event. We're saying that there's just a cause and effect ordering, which means that if the that if we have the the cause, then simultaneously we're going to have a related effect to it. That is simply the ordering of cause and effect. It is not about some ethereal privileged now. So um, let's say we have that, that meeting um, is June 30th versus the meeting is now. Well, the same story kind of holds with what we just explained with the bathroom thing, which is admittedly a strange example, I know. We can look at the relation of the events. So philosophers like to use fancy phrases, and I will reference them so you guys know what you're, you're dealing with when we get to those episodes or if you want to dig into literary, literature yourself. And here we get to the idea of a uh, token reflexive phrase, which is fun. Um, now, in B-theory, we would say that now is a token reflexive phrase. Um, so to translate that into English, basically now is just a way for a statement to reference itself and that which is synonymous to it. For example, I am awake. This means that the one who is saying, I am awake, is awake. Basically, the one speaking is placing himself into the sentence. Now, what about the statement, I am not speaking? Is this the same as, I am not speaking while I am not speaking? And I take this one because it's a uh, supposed counterexample. Now, we're just saying that the time that the person is uttering this, um, then they are uttering that. And I know that seems like we're just kind of heading right into semantics. And we kind of are, um, which brings me to another distinction. The A versus B theory split is in large part based on the way that language works. There's also some other ways to split up the whole time idea, and that's from metaphysics and ontology. And we'll kind of touch on some things there too. So in essence, the B theorist would say that any type of uh, now statement is just a token reflexive phrase, which just identifies that 
the point at which they are saying the now is just simultaneous with whatever time that event happens to be. So no, it doesn't show there's a privilege now. It just is, it is just reflecting itself. It's just putting itself into that sentence. It's baking in whatever the exact time of that statement is into the statement. Self, it's just referring to itself. I hope you got that. <laughs> All right. Um, so with, with a theory, which is typically a presentist position, um, classical theists may have a little bit of an issue because to God, all moments are equally real. God possesses all moments in an eternal now. Um, if eternalism is true for any observer, then wouldn't it be true for all? So if to God, all things are eternally present, wouldn't that mean that we are, in fact, in an eternalist universe? Now, some people would say that that doesn't actually follow, that it can be that we live in a privilege now, a theory, and yet to God, um, all things are eternal, and he does indeed observe all points along our timeline, and that these two things are not incompatible. Now, this can go a couple directions. Um, I, I would suggest the thought experiment. What if all of a sudden Napoleon Bonaparte experienced a now at the same quote unquote time, or I guess in the same reality that we are experiencing a now? Well, if there's now an observer who is not located in the same place as all other observers, it would seem that we don't have one now, but we have two. But if God is an observer who, unlike Napoleon, doesn't just observe one other point, instead he observes all other points, well, it would seem that all points would be a now. Um, now, one might say that they would all be now to God, but not to us. But it seems to be breaking down the idea of an objectively privileged now. Some might say that, well, God has no real relations to his creatures, and that statement comes from Aquinas, and it needs lots of unpacking. But basically, it says that there's no causal arrows from creation to God. I would say that's the best way to describe that particular doctrine. And that there's a disconnection in general from um, God and his creation. It's not that it's part of God or an emanation from God. Instead, creation's made out of nothing, separate and distinct from God. I mean, well, yes, eventually joined in in the incarnation, etc. <laughs> but um, we take the classic definition of God as the total other. So it could be because of this metaphysical separation from the creation, which came out of nothing, that no, God's eternal perspective does not have any effect on a privilege now internal to his creation. But you can make of that discussion um, what you will. So there are two positions. We have a theory, which says there's a real now, and that we can talk about past, present, and future. Then we have B theory. B theory says there's not a real now. Instead, there's simply an ordering of before then, and then later than. And I covered a few reasons for each of those and a couple replies to each one of those reasons. Now, let me offer you what I call Jake's humble map analogy. If you've ever played with a road map on a long trip when you were a kid, you may have done what I did. 
turn all the way to the back, and you find a table. And in this table, it lists a variety of cities along the top and then down to the bottom, making a grid. And it shows the distance from one city to the next. Now, if you were like me, you might take a pencil and a blank sheet of paper and then put a dot and then write, say, Boston. And then you look at what is so many miles from Boston. And you might find that we have, oh, let's say, Richmond, Virginia, say 700 miles, 600 miles from Boston. Well, you could draw a circle around Boston. And that means you now know that Richmond is at some place around the circle. Now, if you know that um, if you take an, another few points, let's say San Diego or Chicago, other things, because you know the relative distance between each one of those, you can start trying to place these along that circle, right? So we know that Richmond is somewhere along there, but we know also that it intersects um, with the distance from, say, another city in Boston or Richmond. So now we have multiple circles, and where they intersect becomes the place where that next city uh, could be. I hope I'm explaining that to make sense. But basically, if you just start with one, you can draw those circles, those relative distances, and if you take your time, not that I ever really did, you could, in theory, redraw the map just from the relative distances from each one of those cities. This is my analogy for the B theory of time. And it does seem that we can actually, like, write out that map, right? But wait, we would be missing one thing. And that would be the orientation of the map. So what direction is this actually facing? Is Chicago up or down relative to Richmond? Is it east or west? Well, given the process that I just gave that shows uh, closer to or farther than relationships, kind of mirroring that B theory, well, we don't actually know the orientation. Now, what we would need here is, I guess, what would be called a vector? Hmm, I don't know. I'm not that much of a math guy. I know that a vector has a, uh, what is it? It's a magnitude and a direction. But at least we need a point with some type of direction, right? We need just one of them, just one spot that can direct us somewhere, at which point we could orient the entire map. This brings us to A theory. Since we do know the direction of time, that seems pretty clear, right? We can look at different things of cause and effect and know that it goes from one way to the other. So we have a direction of time. That means we do, in fact, need at least one point that has a direction. And what point would that be? Well, I think it'd be the present. So that's my argument, or at least my analogy. So take that um, as you will. I'm sure somebody else has offered a similar um, explanation somewhere. So let's now launch into some different subtypes of the A and B theory. And let's cover a couple other uh, related subjects. Hopefully these will give us a few puzzle pieces to figure out uh, which view to go with. Oh, a sip of coffee time. Hang on, hang on. That was more than a sip. St. Augustine and others described time as being caused by the movement of creatures. I think he talks about this in the Confessions, which is a pretty long treatise on time, also in um, On the Trinity, 
And the one that I most recently was reading was in The City of God, I think book 12? No, book 11, something like that. So prior to the creation of the universe, only a changeless God existed, and therefore no time really passed. So time bursts into existence when God created his creatures, and changes in them means that time now moves. So some of this tradition would say, and this might be familiar to you, that time is the measure of change, which I think I agree with. So here are a couple puzzles in general regarding change in time. Here's one. Uh, Dr. William Lane Craig offers this analogy. Would a asteroid, which is just floating through tr uh, space with no intrinsic changes, it just is, just hanging out there, is it moving through time? Well, he would say that although there's no intrinsic change, there is an extrinsic change, meaning because there are stars moving and other asteroids moving, uh, in reality, that means the relative positions of that asteroid is indeed different. So that's an extrinsic change, or what you may be familiar with, a Cambridge property. So it's a relational truth about more than one object. So this is in a different position from that. Ergo, even this seemingly unchanging asteroid floating in space is changing. Therefore, it is moving through time. Um, so that's something that he offers. And here's something else to consider. One suggested that there could be two identical planets. I don't remember whose analogy this is. Um, one, let's say it's Earth, and the other is Earth 2. Now, on Earth, everything goes along through time just as normal. But in Earth 2, every other year, everything, every single atom stops on Earth 2, such that there's no change whatsoever. And then it begins again every other year. The question is, has time passed in year two during this silent year, if you will, this every other year? Now, to them, it would appear that they're just like Earth One, right? Every moment they are conscious, they're running around in the present doing their thing. But there's these space years, there's these gap years that they experience and that they don't even know they experience. So the question is, are they moving through time during the period where there is zero change on their planet or not? So that's another puzzle I want to offer. Um, another one is uh, relativity in general, and we'll talk a little bit about this as we go into some other theories. One is, um, if we are in a four-dimensional four universe, so the three directions plus time, would this imply that there's a common time frame in which we are all located? And of course, this relates to those two examples prior. We might say that it's not actually the fact that the asteroid changes extrinsically that causes it to move through time, but instead, everything is in motion with respect to a fourth dimension. So, it's not that change which is causing it. It's simply the fact that this asteroid, we can draw a circle around its, its length, width, and height, but we could also draw a circle around its time dimension. It began and then it ended, so it becomes what's called a time worm. 
And uh, yeah, there you go. We're hurtling through four dimensions. And that slow movement through time is what allows everything to be in, in a sense, a similar time frame. That said, relativity would say that these time frames are relative to one another so that they can dilate. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that we deny cause and effect. And this is a very important part. Some people might think that because there's dilation in time between two different things, which are indeed changing, then this could misorder cause and effect, such that an effect could come prior to a cause. But that is false. We can never have that happen. That's illogical. Instead, we could be experiencing change in two different frameworks. And we actually have a few um, examples of exactly this. For instance, when we have radiation hit our upper atmosphere, there's these little particles which are shot down towards Earth, and they move at about one-tenth the speed of light. Now, they should decay so quickly that they can't actually make the journey from the upper atmosphere to Earth. So on average, we should find very few of those. Decay is not always constant, but it averages a certain duration. So we could estimate how many of these we ought to find on Earth before they degrade out. The interesting thing is because they are moving so quickly, time is moving more slowly for those particles. Which means, although from our framework, we would think that they would have decayed out of existence by the time they make that journey from the upper atmosphere to Earth, but instead, time moved more slowly for them. So they reach Earth, and in pretty large numbers, far more than we would have expected. Now, does this change cause and effect? Well, I don't see how it would, because we're not affecting them their cause and effect chain goes from them in that present moment and then back to preceding moments, just like ours goes from our present moment back through preceding moments. And while it's true that this could then affect us, the point of it affecting us, for instance, it striking our earth, represents a now for our Earth as it is struck by this thing. So whatever is struck then has a time frame which in which it is now, and there we go. We have a chain of causality, one thing to the next, um, and I don't see a problem with this. So we do have some puzzles related to the warping of time that need to be explained in each one of these theories. However, I do want to say, and I'm pushing this because some people believe that this could misorder cause and effect, and I don't see how that's so. Um, yeah, that part is not a problem. All right, the other puzzle piece, and I know these are many puzzle pieces, but hey, have you ever used a puzzle? There are many more than this. I think I only have like five or six that I'm listing. So what do we do with that measure of change definition? Some would say that it's a circular definition. Let me explain that. Time is a measure of change. They will zero in on the word change and say, well, what's your definition of change? Doesn't change imply going from state one to state two? But a movement from state one to state two is time. Right? It's a movement from a time to another time. 
So your definition, because it includes the word change, and change is including the concept of time, means that your definition of time is therefore circular. All right. Um, yeah, so we'll, we'll get into that one a little bit. Um, but let, let me bring up one thing here. We talked about the common framework, so I want to just throw a few thoughts on that. One is the common framework between the asteroid and other asteroids or the two planets. The other one is the common framework idea of fourth dimensionalism. There is one other view called fragment, um, fragmentism or something like that. It's a very small minority view, so th I'm trying to make a fairly exhaustive list of views for you. I didn't want to forget this one. That would say that, no, there isn't some common um, anything between these. These are just things. They experience time. They're just kind of doing their thing. They could interact, but that would just be where, like, one time touches the other time related to that thing. Okay, um, so I think that the movement in other places is a sign that the common time is moving. So I would solve that asteroid puzzle uh, that we began with by saying it's not that another asteroid is shoving the first asteroid through time because they have some type of relation. No, Asteroids do not cause other asteroids to move through time through extrinsic changes. I don't think so. I think instead that movement in other places other than that static asteroid is simply a sign that a common time in which they are all experiencing is in fact moving. So it's not causal. It instead tells us something about the state of the world in which they both exist. That's how I would deal with that. Oh, let's see. Let's see. What else? Um, so what do we do with that circular definition thing? I will get more into that one when I describe what my view of time is, at least at this moment, what I hold tentatively. So I'm not going to answer that particular one at the moment. Um, relativity theory, one last thought about that. This is really one of the few empirically testable hypotheses we can do to study the nature of time. So as I've said close to the top of the episode, all theories must wrangle with the findings that we, we see in relativity. Um, for example, what I described with those decaying things coming from the upper atmosphere. So with all of this in mind, and with those puzzles, and with those um, small explanations in the top of our brains, let's talk about some of the sub-theories um, of A theory and B theory. The first sub-theory of A theory is called uh, presentism. Uh, the next is growing block theory. And the final one is moving spotlight. With presentism, we have awesome thinkers like Ed the Phaser Beam Phaser, who advocates that. And he's written some on his blog and in a number of his books, though I don't think he has one dedicated to the theory of uh, presentism. He might. But all of those works are definitely worth reading. I think he has some pretty cool defenses of his position. And one of which, of course, is it accords with intuition. Um, it does get pretty tricky with what to do with those findings in relativity because it seems to be a straightforward contradiction. I did my best to kind of describe how a presentist might understand those nows earlier, but it does seem a bit stretched, if you will. If there's really a now 
um, what do we do with a time dilation where two different existing things seem to have a different now? And what on earth do we do with the fact that we're actually pushing things into the future when we move them at a higher rate of speed? So if we send an astronaut up into space and we shoot him along at 25,000 miles per hour, he is going into the future faster than we are. So if presentism is true, how is it that we can affect the now of a thing like an astronaut by simply shooting him faster through space? It seems tricky. There are different ways that this can be defended, but I think just on its face, that's a little tricky. Um, another one which is more uh, philosophical as far as objections go is what's called the truth maker objection. And it's something like this. Uh, stock example, which I think Phaser defends at one point, is that Caesar is killed on the Ides, Ides of March. Now, is that true or not? Well, yeah, that, that's true. But what makes that thing true? Well, there's a couple things that can make something true. One is the existence of a thing. Um, if I say I have a cup of coffee, that is made true by my cup of coffee. If I say I am thinking about my cup of coffee, well, that is made true by my thoughts. And if I say that cup is spelled, oh, come on, Jake, you can do it, barely literate, C-U-P, well, that is true simply because of the nature of language. So there, those are the three main categories of truth makers. Now, could we say that it's the nature of language which makes the fact that Caesar, Caesar was killed on the Ides of March true? Uh, no, doesn't, doesn't seem to be. Is it a mind-dependent reality whereby, because I think that he was killed in the Ides of March, he was? No, it's not like I'm thinking of my cup of coffee. So that leaves us with the last category. It must be made true by a real existing thing, right? And what would be the only candidate to make that true? Well, Caesar, the Ides of March, the being stabbed by everything situation, right? That it would be the truth, truth maker. But under presentism, uh, that thing is gone, right? He no longer exists. It's no longer the Ides of March. Um, we don't seem to have a truth maker. But if we don't have a truth maker, then what's making that true? You want to say that's true, but you don't have a truth maker. So what gives? Therefore, presentism has this contradiction, and we need to either accept, say, a growing block theory, which we'll get to, maybe a spotlight theory or some type of eternalism. Now, there's some replies here. Phaser would say, no, it's the truth maker is that he did exist. Like, th that just plain old becomes truth. And there you go. Right? So the truth maker for he that did happen is that it did happen. And then the truth maker that we're referencing is just the fact that it did happen. What's the problem? Um, instead, it seems to be assuming... <clears throat> one of the other theories to object to this one. So he would just deny that that's necessary. Um, to pile on to his answer a bit, and I think he has a blog post specifically about this, so if you want to get more into that, I would suggest that. He would say the cause of the truth, 
I would say, the cause of the truth could be said to persist in its effect. So the effect of the death of Caesar would be, well, there's a variety of things, but one of which is just simply to make the statement that he was killed in the Ides of March true. And this truth, uh, this truth um, doesn't exist. Well, if this truth, uh, uh, sip of coffee, hang on. Okay, thought process back. So then it would be on the opponent's um, it would be on them to show why the truth that was made true by the original event went out of existence. So if it came into existence, which we would all agree at the point of it happening, what caused it to go out of existence? You would have to show that um, the type of dependence relationship is such that it would just drop out of existence completely without the original truth maker. Now, maybe you could show that, but even if you did, I might say that the truth can exist in the minds of people, right? That's how we know about it. Or even, dare I say, written into, uh, written into books, the truth persists because it's there. And then minds come to know it. Or we could say that angels know this truth. Or we could say that God knows this truth. So the truth does not go out of existence because it is constantly known by a mind from the point when it was the present. So we could offer some defenses here. So what about growing block theory? Now, Trent Horn, you may have heard of him. He's been on the podcast, super cool guy. He is a growing block theorist. So this can accept that earlier truth maker objection as legit and say that what that what grounds these truths is simply that the past is real in a way. So it's called growing block because um, imagine a block of real events and we call that the past. And then the very edge of it is called the present. And that's pushing into the future, actualizing these potentials and making a larger and larger block as it goes. Now, I think that growing block theorists can actually appeal to common sense also because we really do feel like there's an actual difference between past and future events. But under a strict presentism, well, that would be strange because the past does not exist, the future does not exist, so they're kind of on an ontological par, right? But growing block theory says, no, there is really a difference between past and future in that one really is and one is only potential, and then the border case is simply the present. This also claims to deal with cause and effect better. So the cause can stay in existence and produce an effect. But in a strict presentism, it's claimed that the cause would have to go out of existence for the effect to become the next moment. And this would seem to be a problem because now we have this space of, of, of nothingness. And of course, this gets us in, into some classic problems of uh, Heraclitus and Parmenides, uh, Parmenides, who was an eternalist, who believed that there was a, something like a four-dimensional static universe. Heraclitus, who believed that everything was constant flux ch change and you know craziness. And of course, Aristotle comes in and he solves this with the idea of actuality, potentiality, and non-being. Three categories, potential being that which is in between the two. But I've talked about that in a couple other episodes. So I won't belabor that much more. You can go back to a very early episode, which is a uh, talk I did on St. Thomas Aquinas. And I talk about that. Uh, if you find the YouTube version, you'll even see hand motions, which are fun. 
Okay, so an answer to this objection could be that, well, we have a cause and bam, it explains its effect. And this is all we need. We don't need an infinite amount of intermediaries. Um, therefore, it'd be fine to have uh, space in between. So in presentism, we just have something exists, right? It has real causal powers according to its nature. And hey, that's enough to explain the next present moment, right? We can stick to the principle of sufficient reason. There is a sufficient reason for the next moment. So what's the issue? It seems to be that we're, we're posing a problem where a problem is not clearly there. Now, with growing block theory, um, there's another objection to this, and that is we seem to lose that real present that, um, that presentism can secure. Why can't five minutes ago be now? After all, it is real, right? So now is real, but the past is real too. So where did our real present go? Why couldn't we just say that every actual moment is actually present? And why does it have to be distinctly this border case? Now, I think there's a few answers to that. And we kind of dig into what exactly is happening at the point that we move into the future and what is causing that. That gets us into who knows what. <laughs> so the next one is, so now just a reminder, we have presentism, right? Just the present exists, past is gone, present is not yet. We have growing block, the past exists and the present exists and the future is not yet. So these are all under that that uh, that tensed view of time. There's a real past, present, future. And the final one is moving spotlight theory. Now there's a couple types of spotlight theory and I'll be talking about two. Now in this one, we say that all moments are real in a sense, and this sense is cashed out in a variety of ways. So the present is unique because it's kind of like a spotlight that is illuminating it. Um, we have this ordered group of events, and the spotlight's just illuminating a specific uh, grouping of them. And that grouping we call the present. And a stock example for this is a film reel. So we have the orders, uh, the order of scenes as we're going to play this movie. Then we have the light being projected through and it just moves through the different frames and then it illuminates something and there we go. The present would just be that which is being illuminated at this given moment. Now, the type of theory that Cameron Ross, who will be our guest next week talking about spotlight theory, holds is that things endure through change and have properties like and have properties like age that change. So he seems to reject the idea that we are those time worms that we talked about earlier. Basically, we can draw a circle around your three dimensions, but we can also draw a circle around your fourth dimension, such that the who you are is a thing in a block universe of four dimensions that we could identify if we could indeed see that fourth dimension. Um, so he seems to reject the time worm hypothesis, though I'll get into that hopefully. And he would say that the spotlight illuminates a new temporally extended part. Um, no, he'd also deny that. <laughs> Sip of coffee. Okay. Um, so, okay, I think what he's saying, and it's a little unclear, that's why I need him on the show, Seems that this spotlight in his version of spotlight theory gives new ages to objects and thus changes their properties. 
So instead of it just passing through that time worm, illuminating different parts of the time worm, he would say the spotlight acts a little differently in that it would be aging that subject such that those properties change. You know what? I just coined a phrase, and I hope he, I hope he uses this one. I call it the sunburn theory. So imagine that spotlight is like the sun, and there you are on the beach. The fact of it shining on you is aging you. It is, it, it's moving you through time as a subject, but not as a subject in a four-dimensional block universe. Now, Trent Horn says about spotlight theories in general, um, hang on, I have some notes, but but then I hit the wrong button. So uh, he talks about this. There we go. We're back. Uh, he calls this the combination of all of the worst parts of the other, other theories. I, I don't know about that one, Trent. Um, I definitely see where he's coming from. If you go back and listen to the different arguments that I was making, you could see how a lot of them are actually addressed at a type of spotlight. So it kind of true, but I think that uh, it also illuminates some cool stuff, and I'll get into that soon. Now, spotlight theory in general makes a great transition into talking about B theory, which is consists of different shades of eternalism. So to understand this stuff, we need to make sense of um, views in relation to time. So there's enduratists and there's perduratists. So perduratists are saying that there's four-dimensionalism, uh, we're time worms, and that we have temporally extended parts. So just like my arm extends in three dimensions, I have parts which extend in four dimensions. So that would be a lot of those spotlight theorists um, of the classical type. It would also include possibly growing block theorists. I think they would be included in the perduratists. And as we move into B theory, um, the eternalists would typically also be perduratists. Now, the enduratists would take a three-dimensional view of things and say that these three-dimensional beings are completely present at every moment of their existence. So the spotlight theory that Cameron takes, that we'll be talking about next week, is an enduratist version of spotlight theory. So if you come across those words, that's what they're relating to. Um, so you might think that as we move into B-theorists, you might think that all eternalists are B-theorists and that the two are interchangeable. However, given special relativity, some would say that um, some would be eternalists that deny the B-series of time. However, others think that actual relativity and special relativity theory and stuff affirms the B theory of time. So there's the jury's out on that one. However, I'm pretty sure that all B theorists are eternalists, but not all eternalists are B theorists. Um, and not all four dimensionalists. Uh, yeah. Anyways, <laughs> so physicists seem to be, I hope you got that. Physicists seem to be mostly B theorists and eternalists, and most often accepting four-dimensionalism, four right? So those are f three different things. It's kind of like the rectangle is a square type thing. Um, 
Yeah. All eternalists are B theory. No. <laughs> All right. Anyways, listen to that part where I actually got it right five minutes ago. So yes, physicists tend to be B theorists saying there's not a privilege now. They tend to be eternalists saying that all moments are indeed real. And most all of them accept a type of four-dimensionalism that says that the truth about a given subject includes the fact of their temporal extension through that fourth dimension, which is time. So, there's my rundown. Have you picked a favorite view? If so, what is it? Email me. Tell me what you think is likely, what's not likely. As always, you can email me about anything at thegordianot101 at gmail.com. Now let's get into what my view is. Are you ready? So to kick it off, I accept that time is a measure of change. However, I deny that this implies circularity. Because I take change as a reduction of potential to act. So it's true that we could say that a, a, a baseball that's thrown against a window breaks the, the, the window, right? Because we have the actualizer of the breaking, we have the potential to break, right? We have this type of series. It's thrown, it hits, it breaks the window. Um, however, that's not the only type of causal series we can have. There's actually another one. That would be called a um, accidentally ordered series. So it moves through and it has a temporal relation, right? A baseball breaks the window and the window's broken, right? But there's another one. There's also an essentially ordered series. And this also can be included in the idea of change. Typically when we say change, we only mean things in an accidentally ordered series, but... It's not the only one. Let me give you an example. So God's actualization of our existence does not have to be housed in a temporal sequence, and yet it does represent a change, but in the Thomistic, you know, act potency kind of sense. Therefore, I can keep my definition that time is the measure of change. Thank you very much. And we have a counterexample to those who would say that it is um, circular, because it's not. We can just simply say that God is real-time actualizing our potential to exist. And if he's doing that real-time, just simultaneously with the effect, then, um, yeah, we, we, we don't have to include a time-based notion in our definition of change. So there you go. If I was to restate the definition, I would say time is a measure of the actualization of a potential. And there we go. It's not circular at all. But in what way is it a measure? Well, let me just give you a few examples. One is, imagine we have some bowling balls. One is still, and the other one's moving. And the moving one strikes the one that's still. Well, it's going to start moving the next one. In other words, it's going to actualize its potential to move from point A to point B. Now, we find something kind of interesting here. If the actuality of the, the power of the, the actualizer in the moving bowling ball is greater than when it actualizes the potential in the static bowling ball to go from point A to point B, well, it will happen in less time. In other words, we see that time is derivative of the amount of actuality of the actualizer. So if we increase the actuality, 
then the thing which gets actualized gets actualized in a shorter time. So now we have a real relation between actuality of the agent and the time it takes to make a change, to reduce from potential to act. Let me give you another example. If I have uh, a popsicle and I put something warm like, I don't know, somebody's hand against the popsicle, will actualize its potential to melt. But what if I put a, a nuclear fuel rod right next to it? Well, that's a much more powerful actualizer, and that's going to bring it to its, uh, its new state. It's going to actualize that potential in less time. Why? Again, because we see that time is in proportion to the power of the actualizer actualizing a given change. So here we start to see the, the, this time in proportion to actualizer idea. Um, so let's try another few things here, which are a little bit less um, physics related. Um, what about God and creation? Stuff like that. Well, let me ask you this. How much time did it take for creation to spring into being? Well, no time, right? Because there was no time prior to creation being created. That's just true by definition. So this would make sense of what I was saying earlier, that time relates to the power of the actualizer. So God has an infinite amount of power. Therefore, when he brings a universe into creation out of nothing, how much time should that take? The answer should be no time, right? It just goes from not being to being. And now things which happen internal to that universe, well, these are weaker actualizers and they can represent uh, changes and thus we have measures of time there. So what about this present moment stuff? What, what does the Jake theory do with that? Well, I contend that God is this spotlight whereby he drags his proverbial gaze across a potential timeline, successively actualizing moments. So how long is the moment? Well, if my proportion theory works, the present ought to be infinitely or at least minimally small. And guess what? It is. So that seems to confirm. Now we have physics seems to match this theory. We also have the idea of a present moment, which is minimally, um, you know, sized or possibly infinitely small. Well, that works too. So God actualizes our existence such that there is a now, then the rate of change amongst existent things determines the duration of the changes in the now such that uh, they uh, continue or not continue in their changed states into the next moments. So this would jive with relativity theory. The actualizers are simply moving a given change at a different rate than other actualizers in existence. It also makes sense that something with a greater amount of actuality would be having an effect on time. Um, for, why? Because, well, time is derivative of the power of the actualizer. So when we see other facts about time in physics, such as the dilation of time near a black hole, or when something is moving at extremely high speeds, well, under this view, that seems intuitively likely that we'll have a dilation of time. 
because it's in the presence under the influence of a very powerful actualizer, like that black hole or that speeding rocket ship. Therefore, we can expect the dilation. And to just kind of rehash something that I kind of went over very quickly, the when we talk about the actualizers, which are... Um, which we let's say a weak one like that bowling ball hitting the next so if it is not a powerful actualizer and it takes a long time for the change going from point a to point b for that bowling ball to happen then it's moving to intermediate points will persist into subsequent points that god is actualizing with respect to existence. Did that make sense? I think it did. All right. So that means that there will be more absolute existence points whereby that thing will still be moving from point A to point B than if we have a powerful actualizer actualizing that in less time such that it's already happened. So when God actualizes the next potential sets of events, well, then that will no longer be included in those newly actualized sense of, uh, sets of events because the actualizer was powerful and it already made that change. So there you go. I think that uh, that explains uh, dilation in time. That seems to jive with uh, what we know from relativity theory. We do, in fact, get a privilege now. Uh, we don't fall into a circular definition of time. Um, it also makes the existence of the present and the ordering of events, stuff like that, ultimately dependent on God because God is the cause of all actuality. So when Dr. Brian Mullins looks at different descriptions of time, how it moves things through a, a series of, um, uh, of events, so it does all these things. So he names a lot of pretty big stuff that time does. Um, he identifies time as a property of God, and I think he's right in a lot of ways, but if we make my change here that time is derivative of actuality, well, then I can accept a lot of what Ryan's saying, but instead make the further step of saying, well, no, time's not a property of God. Actuality is who God is, and that does in turn explain time. So I think we can bring in a lot of his insights here because he makes some good points. Who? Okay. There you go, guys. If you have questions about that email, me, I think I already gave my email, but it is uh, the Gordian Knot 101 at gmail.com. This was a very fun episode. I enjoyed doing it. My poor little brain, though. My poor little brain. I'm going to do something really not brain intensive after this. I tell you what. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, share this with a, a friend, a family member, an enemy, whoever you want. And I, I'm really bad at promoting my podcast. I completely rely on you guys to do it. Um, and one thing that I'm told helps is to leave a review on whatever you're listening that, on this on. Um, preferably a good one. Um, explain why you like this, uh, why you listen to this, why you let me drone on and on in your ears. Because um, I'd love to read those and uh, get that feedback either by email or reviews. So I'll look forward to some of those. So stop right now, write it, and then go on with your day. All right, and I'll talk to you next time.